Hi, everyone. Before we get to today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that LCI has another podcast called the Faith Seeking Freedom Podcast. It's a little bit different from what you're used to. And because it's very different, we don't want to keep it in this podcast feed. So you can actually go subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom Podcast wherever you get your podcast. The Faith Seeking Freedom podcast is a podcast that is entirely question and answer. And because we've kept each episode short, we can actually release them more frequently. And you can actually listen to them in a shorter time frame. And you can even share them with friends or people that you want to spread the message of liberty. So check out and subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom podcast. Okay, back to the regular podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and on this episode, what I'm going to do is play for you an episode that Carrie Baldwin and I were on the Tom Mullen show a few months back, I think. It was such a great conversation about some of the stronger questions that a lot of non-libertarian Christians often have about libertarianism. And we had a really great discussion on the Tom Mullen Talks Liberty podcast. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Carrie and me on Tom's show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, I'm joined by Libertarian Christian Institute CEO Doug Stewart and Digital Marketing Coordinator Carrie Baldwin. The Libertarian Christian Institute is a federal 501c3 tax-exempt educational and religious nonprofit organization that promotes libertarianism from a Christian point of view. They are convinced that libertarianism is the most consistent expression of Christian political thought LCI is ecumenical in nature, welcoming all those who confess the traditional creeds of the universal church. And today we're here to discuss a book that Doug and Carrie co-wrote with two other members of the Institute. It's called Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions. So Doug and Carrie, welcome to you both. Hey, thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. I got a chance to go through your book over the weekend, and it's very interesting. It's brief, it's to the point. And rather than going on and on, as some of us writers tend to do at our not so uh, best moments, I mean, you guys get right to the point. Here's a question that comes up time and again, and here's our answer to it. It's a great format. So I wanted to pick a few things out that you address in the book and just get your take on it. And I guess, you know, if we're going to talk about Christianity and libertarianism, maybe I'll hit you with what to me seems like a hard one, but I have a feeling that you've got an answer to this. And that is that in the famous eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth passage where Jesus says you should turn the other cheek, I want to read the whole passage because a lot of people only are familiar with the turn the other cheek part of it. And this is how it goes. It says, Ye have heard, and I'm using the King James Version, so forgive the these and the thous. I think most people are most familiar with that. But it says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, 
turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. So the reason I want to read the whole thing is he doesn't just say turn the other cheek. He seems to deal with, you know, the holy triumvirate and libertarianism of life, liberty, and property and says you shouldn't defend any of them, that instead you should just allow people to violate all three. What say you to that argument? Hmm. Well, I have to, I'm still processing go with him twain because like I haven't heard that quoted in the King James in quite a while. So I'm sort of laughing internally that you know, that, that language. I think that means twice. I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I think go with them too. I think it's the idea there. It's interesting that there are a number of things that the Bible can be used to do. And I think that if we go to that passage and say, well, Jesus says that everybody should just abandon the idea of defending their property or their pursuit of happiness and things like that, that I think they're kind of missing the point that Jesus is, you know, making there. You know, when you take things out of context, of course, you can see that there's life, liberty, property there. Ah, Jesus says you shouldn't care about it. Well, okay, fine. You could say that, but in what situations shouldn't we care about it? In every situation? Because that doesn't seem like people would want to apply that at all, because at that point, we would have no boundaries whatsoever with people. We could just say, hey, you need to let me have what you have. And other people would be like, oh, yep, that's right. Jesus told me I shouldn't care about my property. Like, no furthest leftist person would do that unless you're just like a really hardcore literal communist. Well, not literal communist, like communitarian, I guess. Well, unless you're a communist and you're not running the party because they don't do that either. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Carrie, I'm sure you might have some additional thoughts. Yeah, I would have to look at the whole passage in order to really get the context. But I suspect here that what Jesus is talking about is you know, how to love your neighbor. But loving your neighbor doesn't mean being a doormat. If we were to say, oh, well, a guy on the street who wants to demand sex for me, I'm just supposed to give it to him because Jesus said, that's how I love my neighbor. No Christian would agree with that. So there's clearly some context that needs to be had here. And without doing a thorough review of the passage, I can't speak to it anymore. We're than not going to exegete it here. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, and I think what I, I would also add to that is that, you know, there are other options between mandated behavior and prohibited behavior, which is, of course, voluntary behavior. And I think uh, one of the themes I got from your book over and over was that, you know, Jesus asks us to do some things voluntarily that we don't necessarily have a right to compel others to do. So that's kind of the way I've always read it. I was interested to see what your take was on it. Another thing that I I was just reading this other part of your book, and I was thinking the whole time, Brave New World, and then there it was in your book. And this is kind of related. It says, isn't Christianity about selflessness while libertarianism is about selfishness? And I think you kind of touched on that, but what else should we know from the book? Yeah, I mean... The reason that that question is in there is that I repeatedly get pushback from my leftist friends. I don't know if I actually wrote that question or not, or the answer to that question or not. I can't quite remember. But I have to get pushback from my sort of left-leaning friends who are Christians who talk about 
you know, it's just based on greed or selfishness. And greed is kind of a like catch-all bad term for like where capitalism is. But when they say there's a libertarian philosophy, because it's individualistic, it's based in methodological individualism, that that is a sort of carte blanche permission for people to simply be selfish. And so that's why they say it's built on selfishness. And then when you get into the economic explanation or just maybe human explanation of like the difference between self-interest and selfishness, they say there's this distinction without a difference. And they say, oh, you're just, you know, kind of covering it up or you're just trying to obfuscate whether or not we're actually being selfish and that, you know, people shouldn't be pursuing self-interest because that's pretty much the same as selfishness. And, you know, one way to put that is that you could say that we're, it's kind of stale to say it this way, but like we're goal maximizing automatons. I mean, we're more than that, but that is what we do. We have goals and we try to achieve those goals. And individuals are the agents that actually end up being, I mean, there's no, in a sort of proper sense, group decision-making. There's individuals making decisions in that group. So insofar as people think that libertarianism is about selfishness, I could, you know, sort of wrap my head around the idea that there are, libertarians who want to be libertarians because they want to be left alone and they have their own thing. They, they are selfish. So maybe there's that. There's also, is it Ayn Rand who wrote The Virtue of Selfishness? And so that's kind of a popular book in some sense. And so it creates the stigma that adds to this sort of possible disparity. You know, when, when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, there's this inherent idea that there is love for oneself. How can I know what that looks like if I don't know what it looks like to love myself? Yeah, and good point. There is a point to which you can love yourself too much. I mean, Donald Trump might be the, you know, you know <laughs> obvious example here. Like, this guy's all about himself. And we know that that's actually not what libertarianism is about. It's certainly not what Christianity is about. That's not really what this really is. It's really a sort of an easy excuse to sort of pick at language and uh, maybe pick on a few bad apples to pin libertarianism on selfishness. You know, Carrie, what you just said earlier about, you know, the true ramifications of complete selflessness. Mm-hmm. And in Brave New World, they do have an arrangement where everybody belongs to everybody and you're supposed to just sleep with whoever yeah. <laughs> asks you to. <laughs> but there's even more than that. What does the book show about taking, you know, complete selflessness to its logical conclusion? Well, the logical conclusion of that is that anything that Christians hold dear becomes obsolete. So monogamy becomes obsolete. Marriage becomes obsolete. Genuine love for your neighbor becomes obsolete. And any sense that you are an individual becomes obsolete. And I would I would even say that part of this criticism comes from Christians who tend to They tend to argue against libertarianism based on what they know of people like Ayn Rand, which is wholly ironic because Ayn Rand didn't, she was not a libertarian. She spoke against libertarianism. She hated us. Yeah. So, (laughs) you know, it's a little disingenuous for Christians to criticize libertarianism on the basis of Ayn Rand. And, but even her ideas on selfishness are nuanced, right? The other, issue that I would say comes up with this criticism is that they don't understand what methodological individualism is. They think atomistic individualism, which is the idea that we're all self-sufficient and, you know, our own private islands and we don't need anybody else. And I don't know a single libertarian thinker who believes that. In fact, Murray Rothbard has wrote against that idea. 
when we say we're methodological individualists, we're simply saying that it's the individual who acts, it's not groups who act. But we also recognize that we need each other. We we can't actually be entirely self-sustaining. This is why we have economic concepts like the division of labor and, and so forth. But to take it back to the, the brave new world issue, what's interesting about brave new world is that they still have to create their caste system. They still have to have a division of labor. They still have to have all of these things. It's just you know, predetermined by by somebody who's trying to centrally plan the whole the whole bit. And so, you know, when you get Christians who want to talk about how we live in community and we're supposed to love each other and be servants to one another, this is all true. But those things are voluntary. They're necessarily voluntary. And it is not at the cost of the individual's own dignity. So I think Doug is right when scripture says that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, there's an implicit command for us to love ourselves as well. So I'm glad you brought up Ayn Rand because I don't know where this comes from if they train progressives that when they hear the word libertarian, they're just supposed to say Ayn Rand. But it's true that you make two good points. Number one, she wasn't a libertarian. She didn't like us very much, but they don't even get her right. I mean, even what she mm. says about these things is more <laughs> nuanced than what they tell us. I'll tell you, I think I know exactly where they get it from. Because when I took my philosophy degree, one of the classes I took was political philosophy. And the people that they bring up when they talk about libertarianism are Robert Nozick and Ayn Rand. So from a public state school education perspective, that's where they're getting the ideas from. Yeah, I don't mean to be rude here, but like that sounds like a boomer made that syllabus. <laughs> Probably. I mean, seriously, there are way more. I mean, I know roughly when you went to school, uh, what decade you went to school, but like even then, it's like there was better libertarian voices since. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was born in '65, by the way, so not a boomer, barely. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> I wasn't impugning you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's talk about bureaucracy for a minute and regulation, because you say libertarians prefer markets to bureaucracy. But doesn't a laissez-faire market operate on the principle of greed, one of the seven deadly sins? And and however imperfect, doesn't regulating some of that at least make it a little more Christian? Yeah, I mean, at the very minimal, you can assume that there's greed in a market. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a fair assumption, right? People have greed, right? People want more money, even for good reasons. I want more money because I need more money. I want to provide something for my kids. I want to save more for my kids so they can go to a nicer school than I was able to go to. Those are consumptive purposes in the sense that aren't really greed. When people want to attribute greed in a situation, they are attributing motive and attributing like a whole lot more than just people's goodwill efforts to make a, an honest living. And And I think even most people don't even care if people become maybe like sort of you know, entry-level millionaires because, you know, they ran a business for 20 years and that business just ended up being profitable over the course of 20 years and they've got a million or two in the bank or whatever. I don't think people begrudge that level of pursuit of profit. But the idea that people pursuing profit are simply greedy is just, it's a little bit of an ad hominem attack. But what they want to do is they want to make it into a systemic attack. So they want to say, well, capitalism is based on greed or a laissez-faire market is based on greed. 
at best, you could say that, well, because of greed, we need to make sure that whatever system we have in place, it incentivizes people to not just take from each other, but to sort of counteract that by saying, I'm going to serve you. So I'm going to I'm going to build you a website if you pay me this amount of money. And then someone else is going to say, well, I'm going to build you an addition on your house because you pay me this amount of money. And so that becomes the method by which we are making decisions. And there's no... I don't know. I don't think of people as greedy in that sort of way. Now, people are greedy, but what can keep that in check is an open market. If you don't have an open market, you can actually just sort of institutionalize greed, which is essentially what the government is anyway. Do you remember the the quote when someone asked one of the Rockefellers, how much is enough? And he was like, well, just a little bit more. And he was mocking the <laughs> fact that people who are really, really wealthy, he was saying, well, all we want is a little bit more. And I'm I have a leftist friend who who often says this about people who are, you know, like the Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos of the world. And I, I said to him one time about, actually, it was right around Christmas. I said, how much more revenue do leftists want the federal government to have? Well, just a little bit more. And like, he knew what I was doing. And he was like, oh, good grief. So, you know, if you want a system based on greed, it's people who have no consequence for being too greedy and driving themselves out of business or, or whatever. I would also add to that, it's the role of the consumer to regulate the market. That's what our job is. When we find good products, we vote for those products by buying them. And when we find bad products, we vote against those products by not buying them. So it's our job as consumers to regulate the market. And if you want to talk about greed, it's the idea that there should be a small group of people in government who gets the sole right and responsibility to regulate the market. So if we're going to talk about who's greedy, the reality is, is it's the monopolization of regulation that is greedy, not allowing us to do our job and regulate it ourselves. I'm going to add one more thing there. It should be said that not just the consumer is the sort of regulator by the buying or not buying and so forth. A market can be created for whether or not that product should be bought because you may not buy it again. It just might not be for you, but it could be really good for me. And so where do we get that kind of information? You get information like that on Yelp, reviews, all that kind of stuff, which is made possible. So with things like that, you have the ability for more markets to emerge that actually solve the problem in a decentralized way that the government just can't do. I guess in some ways you could justify like, oh, well, if it's highly damaging or whatever, but like even then it's not going to be as effective as a market. All right. How about I'll direct this one to you, Carrie, just and then Doug jump in afterwards. But, you know, Christianity sets all sorts of limits on conduct that libertarian doesn't. And for example, libertarians would legalize prostitution. So how do you reconcile a libertarian world with a Christian world, seeing as the libertarians would allow all sorts of things that Jesus would forbid? Right. So this question comes up frequently because obviously prostitution or more broadly speaking, extramarital sex is considered immoral by Christian standards. And there are a whole host of reasons for that. Libertarian philosophy is, strictly speaking, a legal philosophy. It is asking the question, what should be considered criminal? Or more specifically, what are we going to allow the legitimate use of violence in order to stop? So we have the non-aggression principle and the principle of self-ownership in order to help us identify what actually constitutes crime. And when it comes down to it, there are a lot of moral 
problems, moral behaviors that we would call vices, things like prostitution, drug addiction, those sorts of things that don't actually constitute crime. They're not an initiation of violence against somebody else. Why would a Christian want to legalize prostitution? Well, it is the best opportunity to get women out of those situations. Most women are either trafficked into it or feel like they've got no other option in order to provide for themselves. So poverty. So by decriminalizing prostitution, we actually give women an opportunity to get out of these situations. One problem that prostitutes frequently run into is that they are themselves exploited by the criminal justice system in the name of, you know, getting more pimps out there off the streets and things like that. So you have police departments who have allowed police officers to lie to a prostitute so that he can have sex with her and then arrest her after the fact and then drag her into, well, we'll let you off the hook if you, you know, show us where the other prostitutes are, tell us who your pimp is and things like that. And all this is exploitive of women. There's nothing about the way our criminal justice system handles this problem that's Christian. And so from a Christian perspective, we should also be asking, is the enforcement actually legitimate? If we want women to not be in these situations, what's the most effective way of getting them out of those situations? And we would say decriminalizing it is is a good first step. So we have other motivations, like we wouldn't condone prostitution There's certainly those prostitutes who choose to go into it as a profession. And at the very least, they should have legal protections. If they're going to choose to do it, they shouldn't be just sort of cast aside because they're choosing to do something that we don't morally condone. Anything to add on that, Doug? Because I have another kind of a follow-up that's related. No, I'm good. (laughs) Um, That was was well said. I I was was pretty thorough. Yeah, I I couldn't think of anything (laughs) that she left out. So. The other thing that I was going to ask, and this all, I mean, it's almost like it comes up hand in glove, is that people usually say prostitution and drugs. Mm-hmm. But, and this yeah. is my own question. I, you know, reread the whole New Testament every once in a while, and I just don't see anywhere in there that Jesus or Paul or any of the apostles afterwards are prohibiting drugs unless I'm, isn't it just an issue that's really not addressed in there, or am I missing something? Well, I would say that what's spoken about in scripture is that you're not supposed to, and I'm paraphrasing because I'm forgetting the passage, but you're basically not supposed to poison your own body. And so there are certainly drugs that are a poison to your body. Methamphetamines would be a perfect example. Actually, what's interesting, what I was going to bring up is that since you mentioned that it's frequent that prostitution and drug addiction are mentioned together, One thing that I've recently learned in a documentary called The Wisdom of Trauma is that both drug addiction and sex addiction vis-a-vis prostitution are traumatic imprints, like they're manifestations of trauma from usually from your childhood. And so these really are health issues. Yes, they're immoral, but I think that there's good reason for Christians to actually explore the possibility that the reason why people seek after these sorts of addictions is to try to cope with a very traumatic reality that they've been through. 
in which case our call as Christians is to love them, be compassionate and give them help instead of throwing them in prison and, you know, throwing away the key. Yeah. I think the reason that people link them together and you make a good point about why we should, another reason why we should think about them together, but I would also put gambling in there that these are considered kind of vices that polite society frowns upon, but they're not really crimes with victims other than maybe the prostitutes are victimized by the criminal enterprise that they're forced to participate in. But again, you know, you're free to not do those things, even if they're legal. And I think Mm -hmm. that seems to me like the essence when I read a passage like, no one comes to the Father except through me, that you're making a choice. You have a chance to, you know, go get high and, you know, do whatever you're going to do, but uh, you just choose not to do it. So, uh, of course, that's not inconsistent with Christianity. The problem is, Tom, that Christians don't like it when other people don't choose their way of life. Mm -hmm. And there is this impulse to engage in whatever means necessary to get people to behave in a certain way. I don't know. It it feels to me like, and this has been true of all kinds of people, not just Christians. So I'm not only throwing Christians on the bus here, but like we want to be moral busybodies and we want to make sure that other people are in line in a certain way. If you're going to make the case for some sort of system of society or governance that will sort of protect others and keep others from being harmed, of the three of those things, I mean, most of the things are about self-harm, right? Like prostitution and drugs. The other is gambling, which is ostensibly this idea that some organizations can sort of oppress, sort of take advantage of and exploit others for financial gain. And in which case, in our society, basically state governments get to decide where that's allowed to happen. So at least they're allowing it in some sort of approved way. But yeah, I mean, I think The Christian impulse is that if there is something that's immoral, then we should somehow in some way together decide that this is also immoral for people to do, even if they don't quite agree with whether or not it's immoral. So, yeah. Hey, everyone. If you're like me, you listen to a lot of podcasts by producers and creators who have a listener support model. Sometimes people call it the Patreon model, where they ask listeners to give them money to keep the podcast going because they want a list of supporters. And there's certain benefits to doing that. They offer you know free episodes ahead of time or bonus content and so forth. LCI has taken a different approach because we're a 501c3 nonprofit. We operate solely on the donations of those who are generous and love what we do. Now, we are totally appreciative of the fact that we have a growing audience and everybody's sharing our content. But if you'd like to be one of the people who donate to the Libertarian Christian Institute because we're a nonprofit, it's actually tax deductible. You can do that at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. You can donate in a number of ways, some of which incur fees for us and some of which do not. And you can either choose to pay those fees or not. However you want to do it, any small amount actually helps. We actually do encourage people to sign up for some sort of monthly contribution. So that gives us a better sense of how things are going to go each month through the year. So even if it's as little as five, 10 bucks a month, that really helps us a lot. You know, that really adds up when more and more people do it. So we appreciate all of your support, whether it's sharing, liking, reviewing, and doing all that. But we, of course, appreciate an actual financial donation to the Libertarian Christian Institute. So there is a commandment, go and teach all nations. In other words, tell them what's right and wrong and how to save their souls. How do you distinguish between following that the way it was intended by Jesus Mm -hmm. and being a moral busybody? 
Well, it certainly didn't say go and conquer all nations. Yeah. Okay, that didn't come until a few centuries later, and then we realized, the state realized, hmm, we can use this for uh, our purposes and sort of, you know, force law and coerce and all of this, not that they weren't doing that already. I think a couple things come to mind, and I'll let Carrie chime in too, which is that the first thing we need to do is keep our own house in order, like be the most improved unit as our friend Norman often says, and I think he got it from somewhere else, but he's like, just be the most improved unit. So whatever it is that you have the power to do to live out and teach and preach the gospel and to demonstrate a life of freedom, do that and teach others how to do that. And so one thing that we like to do at the Libertarian Christian Institute is give people not just an intellectual reason for being a libertarian, but also help them think, what does that actually look like? I mean, especially during the pandemic, it's been very dicey. You know, even between Carrie and me, we disagree on a few, on a handful of like individual behaviors as to whether or not you should get vaccinated or mask or where you should mask and when you should and how you should interact with those people. What does it look like to be loving to your neighbor in these situations? And so there's all kinds of, you know, conversation about that. But honestly, I think it comes down to living out the gospel while you preach it in the sense that there is good news. There's just the announcement that Jesus is Lord. There's another way of living. And it is literally the opposite of Caesar. So, because, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you read the book and you'll understand where I'm going with that. Yeah. And I'll let Carrie keep going here. I'll just add, scripture says that there's, you know, the two greatest commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And it also says that God's law, God's perfect law, could not make us obey those two commands. We cannot fulfill those two commands with God's law. And yet human beings have this idea that man's law can help us fulfill those two commands. So you have conservatives who try to get people to love God by you know, abandoning their moral vices using man's law in order to make that happen. Liberals do the same thing as far as loving your neighbor as yourself. That's why they're more social. And if God's law can't make us fulfill those commands, man's law isn't going to make us do that either. So the whole point of the Christian message of the gospel is that Christ does that for us. It's not us that, you know, bootstraps the whole thing. It's Christ. It points to Christ. So though we should absolutely teach all nations, part of that is teaching them that Christ is the one who fulfills the law, not us. And we cannot use man's law in order to coerce behavior that God's law doesn't, doesn't achieve. All right. I know you guys have limited time. I just want to ask you one more thing. And of course, this is a big issue in our times among even libertarians, whether they're Christian or not. And that's the immigration question, which you know some libertarians would argue, you know, outside of a Christian perspective, that you have to have open borders because you can only ban people from property you personally own. And then the other side says, well, no, I mean, this so-called publicly owned land is ultimately owned by some individuals, however badly it's being administrated by the state, and therefore you can exclude people. You know, how do you approach this from a Christian perspective? And why don't you start, Doug, since Carrie yeah. was the last one to... Yeah, yeah, no, it's all good. This is one of my 
if I were a one issue voter, this would be my issue because <laughs> I learned about, I don't know, maybe a decade ago that if we had actual open borders, we would probably eliminate poverty within a decade. Now we're, we're very much on track with free markets to do that anyway, but there are a lot of people stuck in places that the state is keeping them in because the state says, no, nah, you can't just, you can't cross this line over here. In this current situation of the world, and I don't mean the pandemic, I just mean just, you know, the state of affairs we find ourselves in in this century, I can understand why there are borders and that why there are places, demarcations of, you know, nationalities and, and all that. However, I believe that just like we as Americans have a sense of belonging as a single nation, and yet I can cross over the border from Pennsylvania into Maryland, into New York, into all the other states that surround Pennsylvania, and I can keep going and I can keep going and I can keep going. And nobody on the other side of the border says, hey, where's your papers? Can you please tell me why you are coming to this state? Like there has been an agreement for nearly 250 years that we are allowed to keep crossing these borders without any sort of hostility or questioning. Now, obviously there's some few exceptions there with you know federal criminal stuff. But outside of that, that's been the history of our country. And I think it's worked out pretty well for us. And so from a Christian perspective, I would say there's there's really no place in the scripture where we can say, hey, Borders are good things. What we do get from Scripture is God constantly reminding the Israelites and constantly reminding his people that they were once slaves in Egypt, that he is their God, that they need to treat foreigners well. Like the heart of God, as we read the Old Testament especially, is very much pro-immigrant, pro-alien. That's actually a really good word, I think. I know we use the word alien differently nowadays, but that, that word of that strange person in your midst to treat them hospitably is actually really important. I mean, one of the reasons cited in one of the later prophets that one of the reasons for Sodom and Gomorrah's demise, among another, is that they were not hospitable. And so, and we find that in one of the later prophets. So there's, there's this attitude that Christians ought to have toward those who are immigrants to their land. And again, I know that we're not a Christian nation, so it's not like Christians own this land and we need to be hospitable, but that should be the attitude that Christians should have. So it should be Christians who are the ones saying, okay, fine, we need some sort of process for border enforcement, but we need to make it easy because we need to be a welcoming nation. We need to be a welcoming people. We need to open up the gates so that people can come and pursue life, liberty, and happiness. And so I was going to say life, liberty, and property, and I feel like I got the phrase wrong. So that should be our attitude, is that we need to have open arms. It's also a very American attitude to have. It's really crazy to me that the origin story of America, despite some of its downsides, despite some of the egregious things that we've done, that our ancestors have done in this country, has been that people are welcome to come here and also welcome to leave. So, I mean, I know the IRS follows you if you leave, but outside of that, you're literally free to leave. So, yeah, from a Christian perspective, I think it's really an attitude thing because I'm not sure there's something in the Bible that says this is the right policy. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I'll, I'll stop there. Anything more, Carrie? Well, I live in a border state in New Mexico, and I also live in a sanctuary city. And so it's quite normal for us to have migrant workers, you know, come up here. And I think that number one, there's a stigma that's associated with immigration that shouldn't exist. Because I've met these people and 
They are some of the greatest people with the greatest work ethic, and they just want to provide for their families. And I don't see how that's a problem. Number two, though, is the actual immigration process that we have is completely unfriendly. Like it's one thing to say, yes, we welcome immigrants, just go through the process. But it's another thing for them to actually go through the process. I know a couple that immigrated from Egypt. They were Coptic Christians. They wanted to get out of that situation. They came here to America. And the system is such that it requires them to get on welfare. It requires them to get on all of these these programs and become dependent upon the state. Mm. And so, you know, the criticism from conservatives that, well, when immigrants get here, they just siphon off our tax dollars. Well, yeah, the system's set up that way. Nothing says that if immigrants come here, you know, that they want to go on that system. In fact, I know this couple said they didn't want to go on that system. They both had college degrees and had something to contribute to society and they weren't allowed to use those those skills and talents that they had. They had to get on to these welfare programs when they got over. Can you break that down a little bit? Just so I, I had no idea about this until you just said it. So if they're coming over here and they have, let's say, jobs lined up or one of them has a job lined up, why do they have to go on a, a welfare program? That's a great question. I asked her that. <laughs> well, <laughs> so um, she had a or has a degree as a pharmacy technician. I think she finally got her doctorate in pharmacy here, but she wanted to get a job as a pharmacy technician. She needed to get licensing though. And the licensing was such that they wouldn't recognize her education from Egypt. And so that was one piece of the puzzle. But another piece of the puzzle was that they had a requirement, like they were told, you're going to have to go on these welfare programs in order to get through the system. And I distinctly remember her telling me they didn't want to get on it. They wanted to just come over here. And I forget what degree her husband had. I think he, he eventually became a translator. But, you know, they had marketable skills. They could have gotten jobs very easily, but they weren't allowed to because of all of the government processes that are in place. And there's there's more to it. It's not just those two processes. It's very, very convoluted. Yeah, you're taking me back because in a previous life that I almost forgot about, for a while, I was a physician recruiter. Mm. So literally a headhunter for doctors. Mm-hmm. And I placed some that were educated in the United States, but I placed a fair number of, um, for, they used to call them foreign me- medical graduates. I think that I was around in that business right when they changed the term to international medical graduates because the word foreign suddenly became a naughty Offensive. word. Yeah. Like you say, Doug, alien is now like a bad word. But when you go back to 1798, when Thomas Jefferson and James Madison were writing their treatises against the Alien Sedition Acts, they referred to them as alien friends. This was not a negative mm-hmm. word. It was just meant from another country. But anyway, I, I just, I remember that they weren't forced to get on any kind of a welfare program, but there were all kinds of hoops to get, let's say, a doctor, even educated in Germany, much less in India, to take a job in the U.S. Now, this is someone who's got a residency and you know has actually been living in the country for usually about three years because what would happen is they'd graduate from a foreign medical school And then they would come here and do a residency in the United States for two to three years. So they've been here for three years. And then they still have to go through all of this screening. Now, 
We're talking about a medical doctor who's treated thousands of patients by then in this country, hasn't knocked over a liquor store or mm-hmm. anything like that. <laughs> and uh, I think we could, you know, just let them go ahead yeah. and start uh, yeah, working sure. and paying a lot of taxes, by the way. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I mean, it's some of the arguments against it are a little a little silly for sure. So interesting take. Well, why don't we leave it there? Because there's a lot more in the book, folks. It's called Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christians Answers to Tough Questions. And uh, I'm going to put a link to the book on the show notes page. There's a lot more in it. It handles, I don't know if I want to say hundreds, but it seems like over a hundred or a lot anyway. 102 questions. Okay. 102 questions. There it is. I'm sure that whether you're a Christian or not, or just wonder how Christians would handle these things from a libertarian perspective, really good answers here. And I want to thank you both for, uh, yeah. for spending time with me. Thanks for yeah, having us. Thanks, Tom. Hey, if any of your listeners want to go to uh, libertarianchristians.com and they want to download the audio book on our site, they can use the promo code MULLIN50 and they'll get 50% off. Great. Okay, we'll definitely have that link there too. Talk to you soon, guys, and thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.